Welcome to Walking Dharma Podcast, the podcast where we attempt to demystify classical spiritual teachings and apply them to modern day living. I'm your host, Kristen Coyle. This week's episode is called The Art of Moderation. Today's episode is inspired by the yogic concept of brahmacharya. Brahmacharya means continence. It also has come to symbolize the idea of celibacy. To break down the word a little bit, Brahma means God or creation, and Charya means to follow. So essentially, Brahmacharya is to follow creation or to follow God or the divine. Same thing, just a different phrasing of terminology. And the Yoga Sutra says, By one established incontinence, or brahmacharya, vigor is gained. By one established incontinence, vigor or strength and momentum is gained. So what this Yoga Sutra's entry is saying is that whenever we approach brahmacharya or continence from a place of willingness to not be in either extreme, we become moderate. This is basically what I like to call middle path awareness. It's where we make an attempt to avoid taking too much or not taking enough, whether it be food or yoga asana or even lovemaking. Brahmacharya, classically, when it's very loosely translated, infers celibacy. And of course, we all know celibacy means no sexual contact at all. Not just the act of sex, but no sexual contact with the opposite or the same sex. And celibacy is something that the ancient yogis and even modern day yogis and monk something they engage in to help purify their mind. And celibacy basically, and by the way, I am not here to tell you to be celibate, but I want to cover this base because it won't be complete to cover brahmacharya without discussing this aspect of brahmacharya. Okay, because celibacy is basically the uh, initial way I came to know what brahmacharya is. And it's the most common description of the word brahmacharya, even though it actually means continence. The word continence means self-restraint, especially with regard to sex. It also means the ability to control movements of the bowels and bladder, and the mouth, in my opinion. Basically, knowing when to say something and knowing when to remain quiet. So continence or brahmacharya initially back in the day basically insisted that yogis are celibate. There is this belief that if we have sexual interactions some of our prana or our life force energy gets dispersed. And one of the main points of doing any type of yoga practice, meditation, 
postures, breathing exercises, mantra repetition, you name it. Part of the main uh, motivation to do that is to concentrate our prana. Our prana, again, being our life force energy. So it can be said that doing yoga helps concentrate our prana or our life force. And concentrating our prana basically means we become more potent. We become more vital. And with that, we become full of strength and vigor. Vigor is literally defined as physical strength and good health. It's also defined as effort, energy, and enthusiasm. So the yogis and other spiritual traditions around the world, some of them, not all of them, believe that by practicing continence or abstinence from sexual activity, vigor or strength and good health is gained. For most of us, the idea of remaining abstinent is downright depressing. No disrespect to the Yoga Sutras in any way when I say this, but part of my aim with this podcast is to literally take these ancient philosophies and piece them together with how they actually apply to the majority of us and our current life in the here now. So although brahmacharya classically pertains to sexual abstinence and also self-restraint and self-control, brahmacharya also is middle path mentality. Brahmacharya or continence is our ability to have self-control over all sorts of different aspects of existence, of being alive. Dharma Mitra says, yoga makes you self-controlled. And it couldn't be put better. By adhering to these yogic practices and principles, we learn to be moderate. We learn that too much is exhausting and too little is boring. And so then we choose to understand that being moderate keeps us in a very balanced and vital state. Whenever we are moderate in our effort, and also moderate in our relaxation and surrender, we come to a place of balance. And whenever we reach an impermanent but very key state of balance, our mind moves towards a sattvic or purified state. When we allow ourselves to linger within that balanced state of being for any length of time, suddenly we become very clear because we're not clouded by fiery, anger-driven emotions anymore from too much or excessive consumption. And likewise, we're not burdened by tamasic or inertia, unhealthy, stagnant types of emotions such as grief or depression. So striking a balance is all about staying within that realm of feeling the inherent goodness of all of life. And even if fiery, rajasic, or passionate emotions rise up, or stagnant, tamasic, inertia-based emotions rise up, they can't pull us off of our center too much. 
because we become established in self-control, we realize that indulging in any self-sabotaging emotion is exactly that. It's self-sabotaging. If we allow our mind and our thought process to run wild with unhealthy patterns, negative ways of thinking, incessant focus on the other rather than ourselves, then we quite literally drive ourselves to the brink of extremism. And to me, extremism leads to separation. When we swing to any extreme too hard, we isolate ourselves. Whenever we isolate ourselves from our feeling of connection to all of life, eventually that isolation energy springs hatred. It's the exact opposite of when someone walks into the room full of love and the whole room feels the love. When someone walks into a room full of hatred, quite obviously, the entire room will perceive that hatred even if the person is smiling and looking beautiful. So extremism is the opposite of self-control. Extremism is overindulgence. It's where we think we need to eat the entire chocolate bar rather than one third of it. Self-control is also knowing when to actually not engage in sexual relationships and when to remain within your own realm and take care of yourself accordingly. When Swami Satchidananda was asked about how a modern person can apply brahmacharya to their life, he simply said, be efficient. The story has it that when he said that, the entire room erupted in laughter. Because in my opinion, it seems so obvious. Be efficient. Be efficient with your sexual energy. Be efficient with how you eat. For example, is the food you're eating really serving your energy levels or is it depleting you? If it's depleting you, perhaps re-examine how do I eat in a way that creates balance and moderation in my life. So I know for me, if I were to always follow my extremist personality urges, I would want to eat blueberry pancakes every single morning. But I know for a fact, if I eat blueberry pancakes in the morning, I get tired and then I cannot go and give massages and teach yoga from a vital or vigorous, strength-filled state. So even though my mind or my emotional body wants to lean towards eating those blueberry pancakes, because I know for a fact it makes me tired when I eat them, I might only eat them on every other Saturday. And instead, opt to have protein and salad for breakfast, which fills me with energy and gives me the vigor, literally, and the alertness, essentially, to move about my day in an effective and efficient way. So brahmacharya, or continence, actually spans way beyond just sexual energy. It expands beyond food as well. Part of self-restraint is not allowing painful emotions to govern how we live our life and to govern what we see in the world. I recently had the pleasure of giving a massage to a very powerful life coach who was visiting here from Canada. And she said to me, people are addicted to their emotions. Just like any other addiction with drugs 
or shopping or food or sex, people also are addicted to certain emotional states. For example, if someone is addicted to feeling anxious, they will overindulge in that feeling of anxiety by feeding it with more projection of anxiety. For example, I know from myself, in the past, I tended towards a lot of anxiety to the point of panic attacks and calling my homeopath at three in the morning and telling him I'm having a heart attack and I'm dying and what do I do? <laughs> it's just a panic attack. I would create more situations to panic over. So if I got caught in a traffic jam, all of a sudden I would be panicking about the traffic jam. I would start to feel claustrophobic. I would start to feed thoughts of what if there's an earthquake in this moment and the bridge collapses? But the reality is, in that moment when I was feeling so anxious and projecting all of this anxiety and fear onto my experience, I actually could have just been chilling in the car and enjoying the whole experience, being present, breathing, focusing on the sensations I feel in my body. You see, it is what we make of it. Whatever we see the world to be is quite literally what we see, period, within ourselves right? So if we want to transform the way we see the world, we transform how we deal with strong emotions that arise. And part of that transformation is not just overriding and saying, all is well in my world, when really it feels like the walls are closing in on you. It's to start to search back and be like, why do I feel like the walls are closing in on me? Or why does... Everyone seems so unfriendly when all I do is try to be nice, but the world is a scary place. Or fill in the blank. We have to understand that those are belief systems we have created or have been subjected to from conditioning. And those belief systems, if they take hold within us, become these indulgent, reactive states of being. In my opinion, anytime we have a strong reaction, especially if we're aware we're having the reaction, but we still do it, we are indulging ourselves in our emotional addictions. So if someone constantly feels threatened, then they will actually project experiences with others that threaten them. If they are willing to acknowledge, wow, I constantly feel threatened because when I was 10 years old, I was bullied for a year. And now I feel like everyone's bullying me. Boom. We start to make headway. We start to see beyond our conditioned reactive patterns. And we start to be able to not overcome them, but just transmute those patterns into awareness. So the next time we experience someone that feels threatening to us, we can say, all right, what if I change my perspective? What if suddenly I chose to talk to this person in dialogue and ask them about why they're behaving in the way they're behaving. That would be the first step towards instead of feeling threatened and victimized, becoming empowered and open-minded, open-hearted and aware and loving even towards those who we eventually think don't love us. Eventually we can change that opinion. And we can, over time, begin to change those extreme habits we have towards emotional addiction. And to me, that's a big way I practice brahmacharya, actually, 
is that I work on acknowledging where I am being overly reactive. And I work on acknowledging where I am creating unhealthy imprints through my own belief systems, right? Because if I don't feel safe out in the world with other people, I will naturally have people around me that don't feel safe around me, right? And this can especially echo into close relationships. It's like, well, why does it matter if it's just people? Well, I'm not just talking about just people. I'm talking about how our emotional addictions infiltrate our closest, most dearest relationships and sometimes sabotage them. You know, the art to having healthy relationships is, in my opinion, partially both parties or all parties being willing to identify their own triggers, their own conditioning that doesn't serve them anymore. So we practice moderation. We practice being moderate in our emotional reactions. And I'm not saying don't feel things fully because that's a given. We're human beings, right? In some way, shape, or form, we feel our emotional burdens or our emotional joys fully. That's just the state of being we're in. But where we run into trouble is when we become overindulgent in feeling self-sabotaging emotions fully all the time right? I know for me, anger can be a really strong one. Yesterday, I was doing yoga, and I was feeling really pissed off. And at nothing in particular, but at everything. And this whole milieu of experiences I've gone through lately, where I feel like I have incurred justice, were running through my mind as I was doing second series, which is a pretty formidable Um, yoga sequence. It takes a lot of self-control to not overdo it, so to speak. And there I am dragging myself through it because my strong emotions made me feel like I was wearing a pound of bricks in every cell of my body. And one pose just wasn't happening for me that day. And normally it does. And I was like getting really attached to this not happening. And I was falling on my side. And then I would try to fix myself up and do it again. And, you know, by the third time I finally got it. And man, when I came out of it, my back really felt it. I overdid it. I allowed my indulgence in anger just in my own thought process to actually cause harm in my own body. And I think this is a major point here, you know, especially for those of us listening who do yoga postures or any type of physical discipline or stronger physical exercise. I believe there can be a tendency to take out all of our pain on ourselves. And this can be done in other ways other than exercise. But for me, this is an example that feels really relevant in regards to self-control. For example, in the realm of yoga asana, it's practicing in a sattvic or pure or balanced way. So not allowing these toxic emotions to poison the quality of our awareness. And therefore, if we allow those emotions to poison the quality of our awareness, they also affect the potency and quite literal physical safety of our practice. 
So one of my commitments to myself that I usually really hold to my heart is that I avoid practicing physical exercise when I feel really fiery because I know my tendency is to take that anger out on myself and push too hard. And that is extremism. It's an extreme indulgence in an unhealthy emotion and the reactivity rather than being triggered at someone else is redirected and triggered at myself right so reactivity does not always mean just projecting pain outwardly reactivity can be projecting pain inwardly as well right and we might ask well how do i not project pain we sit with it but instead of letting it become our whole world we witness it we watch it kind of the way an eagle would perch high on a cliff edge and observe the unfolding down beneath it, observe the river flowing and observe the smaller birds in the lower trees and observe the squirrels on the ground and observe every leaf fall, right? Maybe the eagle can observe even within itself. That's how we become when we find that balance point. Because think about it in the quite literal sense. Whenever you strike balance, like let's say, for example, when you balance on one foot, whenever you are very strongly balanced, like unshakable, it's usually because your mind has come to a focused witnessing place where you get out of your own way and commit fully to witnessing and holding your eyes steady. And that's how practicing moderation is. That's how practicing feeling our emotions without letting them consume us is. It's like we're holding space for ourselves throughout whatever emotional storm may rise up. So if we feel extreme sadness or heartbreak, we watch it, we cry, we shed tears, but deep down, our highest level of awareness is totally aware of the big cosmic joke it is is totally aware of the impermanence that any strong emotion or experience is. And is totally aware that at any moment we can choose to stop indulging in it and decide what we are making of this reality in the moment at hand. And this is not for enlightened people, this concept. This concept is doable by every single person on this earth. All it takes is a little bit or a ton of willpower to be willing to be moderate. Moderation equates to connection. Because moderation means we are willing to tune into ourselves and decide what that middle path point is in any given moment. Beyond the realm of yoga and sex, I like to think of moderation when it comes to going out and dancing. Or moderation when it comes to staying home and working. I know that for example, my partner has a tendency to work for like 14 hours straight on his music. He'll get into production mode and literally he won't eat, he won't drink, he won't move out of his chair and he's just there creating these masterpieces of music. But it takes a toll, you know, the body becomes dehydrated, the blood sugar drops, suddenly confusion can arise. 
And this doesn't happen all the time, but for anyone who would do a 14-hour bender on their work, they'll feel this sense of disorientation, right? So extremism, whether it be too extreme at work and not enough relaxation, can result in a loss of vital energy. Just like doing too much intense asana, especially in a strong reactive state, will actually take away your energy. Back to my example of my yoga pose reaction where I pushed myself to where my back hurt, my back is still sore today, more than 24 hours after I did that posture. Today, when I practiced, I approached it in the way of how do I go back to balance? How do I bring my spine and my musculature and my body to a state of feeling balanced and vital again? And today's practice was way more successful. But because I overindulged yesterday, even though I tried to remedy it today, I still feel it. And that's kind of how extremism is. It's like once we swing that way, it's very challenging to not swing the pendulum so hard from one extreme to the other or only to one extreme and no other, right? Extremism is isolation, So moderation is connection because it's saying by being moderate, I'm willing to tune into myself and properly gauge the appropriate amount. So the appropriate amount of sexual interaction. You know, how do I interact sexually in a way that's nourishing for me and my partner and pleasurable and sustaining, meaning we don't drain all of the life force out of ourselves so we're exhausted the next day right? Unless you're choosing to swing that extreme, then if you're going to do that extreme, just be aware of it and plan accordingly. You know, one of my main things I'm looking at is how much I've lacked efficiency in my life. And that lack of efficiency is a direct um, result of my extremism. I think a lot of us have been so bored with life or disheartened or heartbroken that we tend to want to drink our problems away, or have lots of sexual partners to hide from ourselves, or do four hours of yoga asana a day, even when we feel dead tired and incredibly sore and inflamed, or eat four chocolate bars rather than one third of one or half of one, right? There's no judgment on food choices or anything, by the way. In the realm of this podcast, I support everyone. But I'm just introducing this concept of self-restraint, brahmacharya. You know, whenever we're willing to tune into ourselves, engage the appropriate amount, we stay open-minded. Because it's saying, well, maybe today I want to eat the whole bar of chocolate. Maybe tomorrow I have a third of a bar of chocolate. Oh, actually, you know what? Today, I feel my throat is sore. Even though I want to eat the chocolate, my throat hurts. I don't want to eat any sugar right now just to give myself the benefit of the doubt that I'm not going to get totally sick. So I'm not going to have any chocolate today. I'm going to take herbs and drink turmeric and ginger shots and drink holy basil tea. But tomorrow, if I feel better, I'm going to have that chocolate. You know, brahmacharya is basically one of the ways we become masters of our own destiny. It's where instead of letting our addictions become our afflictions, 
we allow our intuitive nature to become our blessing. It's where we intuitively can tune in to what is the middle path here and then commit to following it. So if one weekend I go and go out partying, so to speak, and by the way, after a while, all the yoga we do makes partying basically amount to swimming in the ocean under the full moon and maybe dancing at an ecstatic dance. I'm not talking about partying and drinking a whole bottle of tequila. If that's your thing, that's cool too, though, right? But maybe if one night I stay out really late and socialize, I will choose the next night to be a little bit more introspective and study and just spend one-on-one time with my partner, right? Because too much of anything creates an imbalance within us. And from imbalanced states of being, these unhealthy or, dare I say, self-sabotaging emotions gain ground, right? When we are in a balanced state of being, then we just are able to swing in that really nice space of easy come, easy go. Because we're able to see things clearly, we become a little bit more potent as human beings. Our energy becomes concentrated. By our willingness to activate and utilize self-control, we don't drain ourselves of our vital life force anymore. And having a concentrated amount of vigor or vitality allows us to walk our dharma or our highest heart path in a way that is potent and effective. So rather than spiritually running around the same block of reactions and disappointments and then extreme bliss over and over, we walk in a straight line to exactly where we want to go. So know that self-control leads to potency of intention, potency of attention, and potency to get things done that we are trying to accomplish in this life. If we are continually indulging in everything, we disperse all of our energy. And the dispersion doesn't come from the indulgence. The dispersion comes from the addiction to needing to feel extremes, to be okay with being alive. And although it might be painful at first, if we are willing to step away from our addictions, whatever they are, even just for one day or half a day, we start to see how freeing it is. We start to understand that even if we feel empty, we are self-reliant. Even if we have very little to buffer our experience, even if, you know, maybe someone is smoking marijuana every day to handle the anxiety. And I'm all about the medicinal use of marijuana just to put that out there. But if someone is smoking a lot of marijuana every day to handle their anxiety, they're actually blocking their ability to perceive the anxiety. And what will happen when that marijuana is no longer available to them, maybe they travel to Indonesia or Malaysia or a country where it's the death penalty to have marijuana, right? So they choose not to have it. 
suddenly all this anxiety will come to the surface. And they might say, oh, I don't have marijuana, and that's why the anxiety is there. Or was the addiction to marijuana actually an addiction to keeping the anxiety within ourselves? Right? It's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I am not sure the answer is that important. But I can tell you that our addictions sustain our mental states. So anytime we are addicted to something, we are addicted to extreme feelings, extreme sensations. And although there's nothing wrong with having some wild rides in this existence, of course, it's part of being alive. It's part of the juice of being alive. It's like that exhilaration when you meet the love of your life and it's the first time you make love to them. Nothing can beat that feeling on this earth or that exhilaration of, you know, driving in a car really fast with the windows open and the wind in your hair. It's like, is it extreme? Maybe. But there's nothing wrong with being extreme sometimes. We run into problem when we become addicted to extremes all the time. Because then whenever we're there home alone with a book in the rain falling on the windowsill, we feel this inescapable void and it can be crushing. But if we are willing to sit with that sensation of the void for long enough, it dissipates. And if we're willing to sit with that feeling of emptiness in that inescapable void or vacuum of aloneness, Eventually, it transforms into feeling totally full within ourselves. All we have to do is be willing to feel it long enough. And eventually, we see through it. And we see our true strength. And our true strength is that we as human beings, sentient beings on this planet or the next, are self-sustaining. Every emotional state that we look towards the outer or a substance or an experience to have is actually available to us in the present moment. For example, joy. Joy is a mindset. If we depend on external things to be joyous, we call that satisfaction. That's not joy. Because if that external thing didn't happen or didn't come our way, that joy wouldn't arise. Joy is more a state of being within our heart. And then through that willingness to be in joy within ourselves, whether we're alone or with our 50 closest relatives or best friends, that joy is exuding out of us. So we project joyous experiences. Self-control is also about deciding how we want to feel. And... Deciding how we want to feel does not mean suppression. It doesn't mean pretend everything is positive and amazing when it's not. It's saying when things are not positive and amazing, when things are working you out and wringing you out to dry, how do you choose to be? Can you laugh at your own scenario? Can you be willing to see the impermanence of it and therefore transform that experience from desolation and misery into motivation and inspiration to live your dreams in an even more full, open-hearted, potent way than you ever imagined. 
Brahmacharya is to preserve your vital energy. When you preserve your vital energy, it creates tremendous momentum towards wherever you aim your arrow of intention and attention. And let us remember, where we place our attention, eventually, if it's in the cards, creates our reality. To follow creation, or brahmacharya, remember the literal translation again, brahma, creation, charya, to follow. To follow creation means to follow the natural ways of being within yourself to follow the inherent beauty that we observe in nature and all around us and to understand that everything is always in divine order no matter what yet at the same time our willingness to be self-controlled expedites our journey towards the spiritual ocean of self-realization Right. So rather than taking the long road of following every addiction towards affliction and then learning the hard way, we can see like the eagle's vantage point what serves us and from a moderate place indulge when it's appropriate and withhold when it is necessary for our health and our mental well-being, both physically and also emotionally efficiency is the key whenever we get ready to take on a new responsibility maybe a new work opportunity or maybe even you know in deciphering who we socialize with or not we have to ask ourselves is this increasing my potency or is it taking away from it and if the answer is that it is taking away from it then perhaps the question is do we have enough self-worth to say no Saying no is a big part of self-control. It's realizing that we don't need to please everyone around us to be worthy of existing. To follow creation is to follow the highest intuition within yourself. And trust what you feel and trust what you know for yourself. If it's the day to eat the whole bar of chocolate, go for it. If it's the day to only have one-third, go for it. Trust your urge, but don't let the urge run overboard to the point of creating dispersion of your energy. Because why water yourself down when you can become concentrated? There is nothing that you cannot achieve when you are concentrated. When we become full of vigor, strength, potency, whatever we are trying to achieve is easily reached. And not because we have to do very much, but because we are in the habit of being efficient, Knowing when to say no and knowing when to say yes, we naturally flow towards the direction of our dreams. Thank you so much for listening to Walking Dharma. Aloha.
Thank you.